Got a few things I want to talk to you about. So I want you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew in chapter 13. When you stop and think that, yes, Jesus went to the cross and he did take your place. Is it a serious thing to reject what he did? You need to hear what he said. He doesn't make you and I trust him. We don't have to believe on him. But there are some consequences to not believe in it. He says that he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. He came into the world to save the world. And so those who believe on him are not condemned. He that believeth on him hath eternal life, and he that believeth not, the wrath of God abideth upon him. So it's a serious thing to reject Jesus Christ as Savior. Nobody can make anyone do that. But you need to understand that there are some consequences. And I just want you to take and look there in your Bible to uh, the book of Matthew in chapter 13. And look in verse 35. In verse 35, this is what he says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came in unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares in the field. What do you mean by it? See, Jesus had a mixed multitude. And so if he's speaking to a mixed multitude, he would say things in parables, means that those who really wanted to know the truth could understand, and those that didn't wouldn't understand. And those that uh, kind of get confused would ask him a question. They said, what do, you, what do you mean by that? So he explains what he says. So in verse 37... He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. So understand, this is Jesus doing this talking. This isn't, you know, somebody else. This, this is the Lord saying this. And he's talking about the people that will be in the kingdom and those that will not be. And that the, uh, the tares are like the wicked that will be burned, and even so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom... All things that offend and them which do iniquity shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now you'll find in several places this phrase, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Word a little bit different in different places, but pretty much the same thing. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. We can't 
picture or fathom exactly the depths of all of that. But whatever it is, it's not that they are filled with joy and happiness and peace and in a place of paradise and total bliss for all eternity. It's just the opposite. So he makes a statement here in verse 43. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their glory. So I had a mixed emotions about calling this sermon weeping and wailing or shining like the sun. Because some will shine like the sun and others will be weeping and wailing. Two different consequences. There is a great blessing upon those who trust Christ as their Savior. It's just it's not all over yet. We still live in our life and going through things as though nothing has changed. But that one little decision that you made somewhere in your past to trust Christ as your Savior, you will find was the smartest thing you ever did in your life. And those who rejected Christ as their Savior are going to find that that was the dumbest, stupidest, thing they've ever done in their whole life. Because you see, Jesus Christ is the love of God. Some people accept God's love and some people rejected God's love. And so it's so important. Also look there in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. So he told him a little story to teach a truth about what's going to happen with people at the end of time. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. So there's the wicked, which is referred to the unjust, and there's the just. So there's the just and the unjust. In the book of Peter, in chapter 3, it talks about in verse 18 that Jesus Christ came to suffer for our sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. The whole purpose of Christ coming into the world was to bring you and I to God. And there was no other way or we could have done it on our own. We have to do it through Him, and He's the one who did what He did, that He might bring us to God, being quickened by the Spirit. So as we read these scriptures and understand what He says, then He says in verse 50, And shall cast them into the furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth, there it is again. And then he asked them this, because they had asked the question, well, what does this mean? In verse 50, Jesus said unto them, Have you understood all these things? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. We understand. Now, do you really understand the seriousness of what he's talking about? Everyone would love to come to church and just hear about the wonderful love of God. Well, I talk about the love of God as much as anybody I know. But I also know that you're not going to appreciate the love of God unless you know what's going to happen to you if you don't. A lot of preachers don't like to talk about sin because that upsets people, makes them feel bad, produces mental anguish. 
but I'm sorry. I can't find a way to do one without the other. I always would, even when I do that little wallet illustration, yes, God loves us, but He hates our sin. Yes, God wants you and I to go to heaven, which is a perfect place, but because of our sins, we're going to be eternally separated from God in a literal fire-burning hell. You can't have one without the other. You got, that's the message. There has to be a reason why people see and understand and say, yes, now I know why I must trust Christ as my Savior. And wouldn't it be neat, wonderful, if all the preachers preached the same gospel? If it is the gospel, it is the same. If they do not teach that it is by grace and grace alone without any works before, during, or afterwards, they're not preaching the gospel. There aren't two Gospels. There's one Gospel. The other one is false. The one that's truth is that God loves you, paid for your sins, and will justify the unjust. Make you as righteous as God by faith alone in what Christ did for you, that He paid for your sin, and He will give you eternal life and never cast you out and never lose you, and you can know that you're going to heaven when you die. That's the good news. So as you read these verses and you hear these things, how serious should we take it? Now take your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew and chapter 24. Sometimes it's not always easy trying to figure out what does a particular verse mean. But... Let me explain this. Any statement in Scripture has one primary meaning. And sometimes we need to find out what is the point, what is he after. And sometimes it's not always the easiest thing for us to understand. And you have to distinguish between an interpretation and an application. You see, when you understand what it actually says, you can apply it in many ways, but it means something that's not to be changed. So therefore, you must study and study the context. And if you don't take and leave the text in a context, then you will have pretext. It means you, you will read into it what you want it to say. And there's a lot of people who try to find verses in the Bible to back up their theology. That's a pretext. It means it's not based upon what he said. They're trying to make him say something he didn't say. So sometimes when you can't get one verse and you don't understand it, well, broaden it a little bit and look at it in the whole chapter. Okay, well, that didn't help. Okay, now broaden out a couple chapters on both sides. Okay, now, maybe you have to look at the whole book. And then sometimes you have to back up and look at the whole Bible because you can't contradict other portions of Scripture. No Scripture is of a private interpretation. You can't just let it stand alone on one little thing. You have to balance it with what all the Scripture says, and especially when it comes to prophecy. And so therefore, we're to read and to study the book. We are to seek understanding the words of a passage in light of his historical setting. Who is he talking to? What's he talking about? What were kind of the times and where the scriptures were written? 
to try to understand these things and to seek to understand it in the passage in the light of its historical setting. So we go through these things and we read and we study and sometimes we can get an understanding and when it makes sense, good sense, then seek no other sense. If it doesn't contradict other portions of the scriptures, and you might have hit upon what he's really trying to say. But remember, he always spoke in such a way that not everybody always understood what he said or what he meant. See, God is looking for people who want to know the truth. And if you will do the will of God, God says, you shall know of the doctrine. In other words, those who are willing to do whatever God wants them to do, God can give you more light and more light. But does God know that if He gave you more light, whether you'd obey it or not? And sometimes God does not permit you to grow because you don't obey the Scriptures you already have. And that's why it's so important. But anyway, these Scriptures are important to keep it in mind and understand that. But now here in the book of Matthew in chapter 24, I want you to look down there in another verse. Look in verse 51. Verse 51. And this is where he says, And shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again he's saying this. But he's told them, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back. When I come back, the lightning will be as the east to the west, and every eye will see him. And he says, I'm, I'm coming. So he says, be therefore ready. Be ready. So then he tells some stories about how to be ready because you never know when he's going to come. And so he tells a few stories that I think explain exactly what he's talking about. And I'll show you that in just a second. First of all, I want you to look there in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, look there in verse 30. Once again, he says, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here you have these statements that are mentioned throughout these scriptures. And it's a terrible thing to have to think about. When he's talking about an unprofitable servant, you mean you have to serve? That makes a difference. You're serving? Another one is you weren't waiting, so you were beating your servants, and that's, that's terrible. You weren't looking for them. You weren't ready. And it looks like things that you must do in order to escape this terrible judgment that's going to take place. Well, it does cause a little mental disturbance. And if you think about it, it can cause a little mental anguish. Because you know it's there. But what's he saying? Be you ready. How, how do you get ready? Here I come, ready or not. You know that day is coming. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 13. The book of Luke, chapter 13. Luke, chapter 13. And look there in verse 28. Here he says, once again, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And look at the rest of this verse. When ye shall see 
Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And you won't be there. You've often heard about David, the king of Israel, is going to be here. Jesus Christ is going to come set up his throne and he's going to be here. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be here. And all the prophets are going to be here. Just think about David and uh, Daniel and Noah and Joseph and all of those guys. They're going to be here. And you won't. That's what he said. And there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Because some are there and some are not going to be there. Not everybody's going to be there. That's what he said. So look up there in verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Remember that statement. Will there be few that will be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Some want to go. Some are trying to get in and they can't go. Why? Why? Because they didn't live good enough? They weren't faithful enough? They were a bad steward? What, what's the reason? Now, if they thought they would, and maybe you're here and you think you will, what's the difference? Now, I know, I don't even hope or think, I know I will be there. And the reason is because I'm so good. <laughs> you know it's not because I'm so good. We'll leave that, that dog alone. Look what he says again in verse 23. Are there few that be saved? And then he says in verse 25, When once the master of the house is risen up and have shut the door, and you begin to stand without and knock at the door, say, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou have taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not. Whence you are, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. And they are not going to get to go in. Now, some will. Some won't. But from what you read, more people will be outside than inside. Shouldn't that be a logical conclusion? That's a sensible understanding of what he's talking about? Yeah. Take your Bible now and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 7. And notice some similarities, because these are very, very important. I want you to look there now in Matthew chapter 7, and look in verse 24. Verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. 
Verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So here you have something also. Two kinds of people. Two kinds of results. There's a house built upon the rock and a house built upon the sand. Some people were wise and some people are foolish. Now, we're going to be coming back here in just a second, but take your Bible and turn now to Matthew 25. Matthew in chapter 25. I bounce around for a reason because I want you to stay awake and you stay awake when you're turning the pages. Now, here in Matthew chapter 25, there is another illustration of what he's talking about. And people call this the ten virgins. All right? How many were wise? How many were foolish? Five and five. Uh-huh. Five wise, five foolish. The house on the rock and the house on the sand. Wise, foolish. I think there's a pattern here. I think it's a, a way of teaching. Remember, he told stories, illustrations, but they got to mean something. Now, I don't try to manufacture up every little thing that it means, or I think it can mean. But I believe there's a point to the story. And it's all about be ye ready. When the ten virgins were going to go to the wedding, and next thing they knew, they heard the cry go out. At midnight, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. And five were ready, five were not ready. On the sand or on the rock, it means whether you were ready or not ready. When Christ comes back, those that are ready, those that are not ready. It must be important for people to understand the seriousness of it, or Christ would not have had to come to die to keep us from going to this terrible, wicked place. We spoke about that last week. Now look up there in verse 1 of chapter 25. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. It's the same principle in the story that we just read in chapter 7 of the book of Matthew. The wise and the foolish. And then you get down here in verse 10. And while they went in to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in, and with him to the marriage, the door was what? Shut. And then in verse 11, And afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Open the door so we can get in. And in verse 12, And he answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. That's exactly what we just read over there in the book of Luke. I know you not. I know you not. I don't know you. I don't know you. In verse 13, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. You only have time to trust Christ as your Savior in this life. And you don't know when you're leaving. 
Think about it. You don't know when you're leaving, but only in this life do you have the chance, the opportunity to trust Christ as your Savior. You don't get it afterwards. Be ye ready. Before you die, you should be ready. I took care of this situation 53 and a half years ago. I trusted Christ as my Savior. I'm good to go. I'm ready. I've known I've been ready. I know He can never say to me, I don't know you, because He's the one that fathered me. I am His child. I believed on Christ. He saved me, gave me eternal life. I am His child. And in the book of Timothy, in chapter 2, where he makes the statement, we have this security, this foundation. The Lord knoweth them that are His. When he said, I know you not, I don't know you, I don't know you, means you are not his child. You don't belong to him. Everyone born into the world is not a child of God. He is not your father. Unless you trusted him as your Savior and been born into his family. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven by your good deeds, your righteousness, and put any confidence, any trust in it, you're not totally trusting Christ. You're trusting in your works to get you to heaven. You trust in your works. There is no salvation. It can't be both ways. Salvation is by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. You can't add anything to what he did. None of your works has ever saved you. And none of that you're doing keeps you saved. I'm saved by grace. I'm kept by grace. There is no other way. There is no other salvation. Now, go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. You'll notice, and I brought this out before, in verse 24 of chapter 7, where it says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, the word therefore is going back to what is written before it. And so when you go back and you look and see what did he talk about, and you'll see those same words that he just mentioned in the book of Luke and later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 25. It all runs together. You see, in the beginning of Christ's ministry, the Bible says that in John chapter 3, which is the beginning of his ministry, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God tells us something so simple, but people can't believe it can be that easy. You can't tell me all you have to do is just simply believe it. Well, if you won't listen to me and you won't listen to God, you'll have to go to hell. Because there is no other way. It is that easy. Because it's free. And people can't believe. It's, so, it's too great. I've got to do something. I've got to help. No, he doesn't want your help. Now, look what he says in verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate. This is like what we read a while ago. And then he says, For wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many which be there, they go in there at. Many. And then notice the next verse. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. Few. 
Remember when he says, will few be saved? And so he explains to them, there's a day coming in the kingdom of heaven. See, the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God's rule upon the earth. The kingdom of God is the spiritual realm when you trust Christ as Savior. Remember when he says in John chapter 3 that you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he says you cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So the kingdom of God is that spiritual realm where we're born into the God's kingdom by the new birth. So those who have the new birth will also be in the so-called kingdom of God, and He's going to have us in the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. So we get into the kingdom of heaven by being in the kingdom of God. We're in His family. He is my Father. When He tried to explain it to the fairy, He says the new birth, the kingdom of God, it's within you. It's a new birth. It's inside of you. But He was the king, and He was setting up a kingdom upon the earth. So now notice what He says. He says, few there be that find it. And verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So evidently what he's saying in verse 22 was not the will of the Father in order to get into heaven. He says, the only one who gets there is those who do the will of my Father. Well, then verse 22 says, but many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? He didn't tell you to prophesy in his name to go to heaven. And when he says, we have in thy name cast out devils, he didn't tell you to cast out devils to go to heaven. And when it says, we have done many wonderful works, he didn't tell anybody to do wonderful works to go to heaven. None of that has anything to go into heaven. Where did that come from? It comes from those false teachers that you see there in verse 15. Beware of false prophets. False prophets are false teachers. They have a false message. And they cause people to trust in their works. And that's not what Christ said about how to have eternal life. How to go to heaven whenever we die. And if you'll take your Bible and you look there in John chapter 6, verse 28. Hold your place right here. John chapter 6. I want you to see it. John chapter 6. And notice this wonderful, wonderful verse tucked away over here. In John chapter 6, look at verse 28. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? That's a good question. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye hmm, believe on Him whom He hath sent. You mean that's all? That's it. You have never met a man that's been saved because he lived a good life. There is no such person. There's not one in the Bible that was ever saved because he deserved to be saved because he lived a certain way. You see, I've had people make this statement. You can't tell me that if a person trusts Christ as Savior, and God will save them, 
and he can go out here and do all these bad, wicked things, and he'll still go to heaven when he dies. And of course they expect me to say, well, no, 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 no. And the only thing I can say is, yes, 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 praise God. Isn't it amazing that we teach that you're saved by grace? Which means unmerited favor. Unmerited. You don't merit it. So I can go out here and I can be all this bad. I can do all these wicked, wicked things. And I can come in here and say, oh, I'm so sorry I did all these wrong things. And I can trust Christ as my Savior and God will save me. In spite of everything that I've done. But grace won't keep me saved if I continue to do it. Wait a minute. He can save me because I was that bad. He can save me by grace. I don't deserve it, evidently. But now, do I have to deserve to stay saved? If I have to deserve to stay saved, then it still comes back on to me. I've got to deserve it. So then I can't say when I get to heaven, I was saved by grace. I was saved because I deserve to be saved. I was not saved. Saved because I deserved it, and I don't stay saved because I deserve it. I am saved by grace, beginning to end. I may trust Christ as my Savior and not stay the same, but get worse. And I'm still going to heaven. That is salvation by grace. My works, how I live, have absolutely nothing to do with me going to heaven. I'm going to heaven because of what Christ did for me. Well, don't you think you ought to serve the Lord? Look at my life. You watch my life. I'm not the same person I used to be. I have to believe this because it's the book. And I serve the Lord because I want to serve the Lord. I do believe that every child of God ought to live a life above reproach. That he ought to be a, live a pure life and love his wife and love his kids and do right. But not to get to heaven. Not to keep me good enough to go to heaven. No, I was saved by grace. And that will never change. God can never cast me out and never lose me. That's because he loves me that much. This is why so many people won't get in because they're going to say, well, I'm saved by grace, but I'm going to keep myself saved by the way I live. And now they're going to trust their works. They never really trust the Lord for their salvation. They just think it's a good starting point, and God's going to help me live good enough to make it now. No. He is my Savior, past, present, future. Now go back here to the book of Matthew in chapter 7. And you'll notice that he had said this in the other scripture when he makes that statement. See now in verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Thy name cast out devils, done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. But look at all those good things it did. But it's a work of iniquity. For you to trust in your works and not in the work of Christ. That's the greatest sin you'll ever commit is not to believe 
on Jesus Christ. Believing on Christ means you believe who He was. He was the Lord. He was God in the flesh. He came into the world. He had no sin, didn't have to die, but He died for you. Came back from the dead and said, if you'll believe that He did that for you, He did that for you, then you don't try to earn your way to heaven because He did this to get you to heaven. And He says, I'll give it to you free. And because of that great love for me, I want to serve him for the rest of my life. But I'm not serving to pay him back. I can't pay him back. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, it means in view of what he has done for us, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a, a reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. It means you didn't have to do it. But be a transformed means your life wasn't transformed just because you got saved. It gave you eternal life and you're born into God's family. What transforms your life is the applying of God's Word to your life. My life has been transformed because I renewed my mind to think the way God thinks. God's Word is God's mind on paper. So when you trust Christ as your Savior, He gives you eternal life and you get to go to heaven whenever you die. And that's why He says... Over and over again. Those that do not believe, they will not believe it. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. When others are there, and they're not. And it's not because they couldn't be. It's because they chose not to be. They would not do the one simple thing that the Lord told them. You know, in the garden you realize that sometimes people don't think about all the things Adam and Eve could do. All the trees from which they could eat. They concentrated on the one they couldn't eat from. You think about this. I've had people say, well, when you get saved, you can't do this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And this. Yeah, you can. But see... I don't do that because I don't want to. I don't do that because I don't want to. See, God has helped change my want to's to where I, I want to serve Him and I want to please Him. People say, you mean you can't do this and you can't, 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 can't. Wait, 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 wait. You ought to see what I can do. I can serve God now. I couldn't do that before. I can go to church and please and bless God and Him bless me by the reading of His Word and telling people the best news in the world. I can do a lot of things I couldn't do before. But I do them now because I want to. And I got so much that I can do, I don't worry about a few of those little things that don't mount to a hill of beans. They're not good for me anyway. Anytime God says, don't do that, it means that's going to hurt you. And He loves us. And He don't want you hurting yourself. The reason God says thou shalt not commit adultery is because it's not good for you. It'll hurt you. And he loves you. That's why you don't do it. Look up here. This hand representing you and me. Now, all of this got to be put together. And understand it now. He came to save us. This hand is you and me. The wallet with all of our sins. God says we have all sinned. And to pay for sin is eternal separation from God in hell. So we're all condemned. Christ didn't come to condemn us. Why? We were already condemned. 
That's in John 3, 17. The Bible says that God loves us and wants us to go to heaven, but because of sin, we can't get in. So we've got to do something about this. So people think if they do enough good things, it'll pay for or cover up all these bad things they do. See there? You can't see them. No, it's under there. And God doesn't see our good work. He says all of your good works are filthy rags. So we can't save ourselves. So therefore it cannot be by works. This hand represents Jesus Christ. He's the Lord God in the flesh. Came into the world because he loves us, hates our sin, because our sin separates us from him. So Jesus Christ took all the sin of all the world, paid for it on the cross and came back from the dead. And he says, the only thing anybody in the world has to do to go to heaven is to believe that he did it for them. And if you'll believe he did it for you, he puts the payment he made to your account. You have a payment for your sins. See, I can't go to hell because I don't have any sins to pay for. I have a payment for mine. They're all paid. He did it for me. Why? Because I'm so good? No, because he loved me. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I'm a dirty, lousy, stinking, rotten sinner and I ought to go to hell, and I know it. And you do too. But God loves us, and he wants us to go to heaven. So he went and paid for our sins. And he only asked you, will you believe it? If you'll believe it, you'll be right there along with all the good guys. You'll be there with all the Old Testament prophets. You'll be there with Jesus. You'll be there with David and, and Joseph and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and They'll come from the north, the east, the south, and the west. We'll all be together. But there's some going to be on the outside that can't come. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and thrown into the furnace of fire. It didn't have to be that way. That's why he pleads over and over and over again. And he told the stories where they could understand it. They'd only listen to him. Do you know we have people today that still can't fathom this? And even after they're told it's free, I'll never believe that. You make it too easy. Okay, well, I'll try to make it hard. <laughs> no. God does love us. Paid for our sins. Would you believe he did it for you? How many of you in here have already believed it? Let me see your hand. All right, put your hand down. They're not going to heaven because they're good. I know some of them. <laughs> it's because they believe that when Christ died, he died for them. You can do this. Let's pray, shall we? Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. The quietness of this moment, no one looking around. Would you right now just say, Look, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I believe that when Christ died, I believe he died and paid for my sins. And I don't want to be left out. I don't want the weeping, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth. I don't want to be thrown into a furnace of fire. I don't want that. So right now, the best I know how, I will accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And friend, God said, if you'll believe it, He will save you and give you eternal life. Would you trust Him? I pray that you will. God loves you so much. But I'm going to ask you in just a moment to raise your hand. Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know that what I said made sense to you. And I'd like to have prayer for you. I really would. So with head bowed and eyes closed, anyone all before we close, say, yes, preacher, that made sense to me, and I will trust Christ as my Savior. It's my only hope of going to heaven. Would you slip it up real quickly and put it right back down? Is there anyone at all? If you have already trusted Christ as your Savior, you're God's child. But chances are you know people that's never understood, never trusted the Lord. It's a serious thing. 
Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to teach your word. And we pray your blessings upon those that are watching by internet and those in the auditorium. Help us understand your word and to take it the way we should, to believe it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.